Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Laura Reese, your podcast host for today. Our podcast guest today is Dr. Peter Kim, who is a professor of management and organization at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Dr. Kim's research focuses on the dynamics of social misperception and its implications for negotiations, work groups, and dispute resolution. His research has been published in numerous scholarly journals, received 10 national and international awards, and been featured by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio. He serves as a senior editor for Organization Science Journal, as an associate editor for the Journal of Trust Research, and on the editorial boards of the Academy of Management Review and Negotiation and Conflict Management Research. He is a past associate editor for the Academy Management Review and past chair of the Academy Management's Conflict Management Division. He has also just completed his first mass market book published by Macmillan called How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. You can order the book from most bookstores. Today's episode focuses on the topic of trust and the lessons on trust featured in his book. You may also remember Dr. Kim from prior episodes in which we discussed ethical accounting and in particular hypocrisy in individuals' ethical accounting. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Kim. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back here talking with you, Laura. And we're so glad to have you. So your book is just such an engaging mix of science and real, really often very vivid stories to illustrate key points about trust whom, when, why, how we trust, and how that trust can be both broken and repaired. And I certainly encourage all of our listeners to trust me when I say they should read the book. But let me start with a deceptively simple question that I kept thinking as I was reading. What is trust? The book discusses trust as a psychological state, vulnerability, and positive expectations. But what does it really mean to trust and be trusted? It's a great starting question uh, because it is more complicated than it seems on the surface. So social scientists have defined trust in a way that encompasses all those considerations. Uh, so the, the formal definition I use in the book and in my work is that trust is a psychological state comprising the intention to accept vulnerability based on positive expectations of the intentions or behavior of another. Now, that may seem like a lot to digest. It has a lot of different elements to it, but those elements are there in order to distinguish trust from things that may seem like trust, but aren't. Uh, And there are lots of ways in which we get trust and other things sort of confused. For example, this emphasis on the intention to accept vulnerability. The reason why that's there is that a lot of times when we're in situations involving risk, uh, our natural response is to think of ways to reduce that risk. And uh, oftentimes that's, you know, through rules, regulations, contracts, or, or just 
you know, other mechanisms we can identify that can help deter someone from acting in an untrustworthy manner. This is often something that I see being a primary focus in HR professionals. A lot of their work is focused on how do you mitigate risk? How do you keep employees, for example, from doing things that the organization doesn't want them to do? And so that is one approach to organizing and managing an organization, but it is not an approach that nurtures trust. It's not a trust-based approach. And in fact, that kind of approach can often inhibit trust because if you have all these rules and regulations and uh, negative penalties in place to deter these kinds of violations, then you don't really know if they're acting in a trustworthy way because they are simply being forced to do so or because they're trustworthy. And so that question of trust still remains. And the other element that the definition underscores is the notion that trust is a psychological state. And the reason why that's underscored is because we often act as if we trust other people, even when we may not. And so if those laws and penalties and surveillance systems are in place to essentially discourage other people from acting in, in an untrustworthy way, well, then we might cooperate with them. But this isn't because we trust them. It's because, in effect, we, we trust the deterrent system that's in place. <laughs> and that's a very different kind of thing. So this emphasis on trust as a psychological state, it really gets at the notion that you are inclined to make yourself vulnerable because you believe the other person deserves it. And you note early in the book's introduction that there are, quote, two most powerful determinants of trust. And I found this so interesting. You said the first is competence or the belief that someone possesses the technical and interpersonal skills that are required for a task. And the second is integrity or the belief that someone will adhere to a set of principles one finds acceptable. And this made me really wonder, do we do we really need both? Can someone still be trusted even if they're not very competent? Or honestly, am I totally out of luck in getting people to trust me if I'm not competent at something? And maybe that's the right answer. And you also talk about the difference in how we interpret those signals of competence versus integrity. Can you tell us a bit about why those two signal types are so different and important? So for your first question, trust doesn't necessarily require both perceptions of competence and integrity. I focus on those two considerations because they've generally been found to be the most important across situations, regardless of whether that target is peer, a leader, or a subordinate. But there's additional research that indicates that we consider as many as 10 different characteristics when making this decision to trust someone or not. Uh, and it turns out that the relative importance of those considerations will differ depending on the type of relationship. For example, if you're about to get heart surgery, I would imagine that the most important consideration is competence, far more so than <laughs> things like, <laughs> you know, loyalty or, you know, you know, receptivity. <laughs> uh, for yeah. delivery service, th the most important thing for trust there might be promise fulfillment. Are they actually going to deliver when and, and where they say they, they're going to deliver? And for a spouse, I would imagine loyalty is going to be much more important than things like even competence. You know, uh, we are all incompetent at many things. <laughs> we all have our domains of competence and incompetence. <laughs> and yet our spouses are, are still with us. <laughs> for those of us that do have spouses. Uh, and, and that speaks to how, you know, the type of relationship really does matter for, you know, the relative importance of these different kinds of considerations. Another reason why I focus 
focus on competence and integrity is because of the the difference in how we perceive these attributes, as you alluded to in your uh, your question. One of the things I elaborate in the book is the idea that each of these considerations has a bias associated with them, but these biases are different. For matters of competence, we have a positive bias. We consider positive information about competence much more diagnostic than negative information about competence. So if you are a baseball player and you hit a home run, you're considered a home run hitter even though you might strike out afterwards. And that bias is there probably for lots of lots of good reasons. You know, it's because we believe that all sorts of things can keep even highly competent people from performing well in a given circumstance. An athlete, for example, may not perform well because they have an injury. Someone may not perform well because they were not given enough time or the situation did not provide enough motivation for them to exert the effort. That negative information, if they don't perform well, it's not considered very diagnostic because lots of things can get in the way of even highly competent people for performing well. But we also believe that you really do need to be competent to perform at that at a high level. That's where high positive information about competence can be considered much more diagnostic. For matters of integrity, though, th- this bias is reversed. We have a negative bias for integrity in the sense that we consider negative information about integrity much more diagnostic than positive information about integrity. This is because we believe that even unethical people can refrain from bad acts depending on the situation. For example, if there's a strong surveillance system that will ensure that they're caught, well, knowing this and that there are punishments, severe punishments for getting caught may be enough for a non-ethical person from uh, behaving in a bad way. So that's why positive information about integrity is not considered so diagnostic. But we also believe that ethical people cannot be made to do bad things. It's it's only unethical people that, that do bad things. So if we don't believe the Pope will commit a mugging or a murder, right? And it's that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hope. <laughs> so because that negative information about integrity is very diagnostic, acting well doesn't mean so much with regard to integrity. Even bad people can behave well, but only bad people will do bad things in our minds. And that's why we put such an emphasis on negative information about integrity. Each of these things are biases, it turns out. You know, So there are times when people perform very well due to luck. And there are times when even good people can be made to do bad things. There's a, there are decades of research in the social sciences, as you know, that demonstrates this fact. We can get good people to do all sorts of bad things uh, depending on the situation we put them in. But these biases are alive and well in how we perceive the world, and they play a major role uh, in how we make trust judgments. And that's why there's such a, a big focus in the book. And that explanation makes a lot of sense. So thank you for that. And and really, it actually highlights exactly my next question. I really appreciated in, in the book that your approach is explicitly not about quick fixes, quote unquote, but about taking time to really understand the nuances of the science behind the ideas, even when that's complex. And one question that I had, you know, my students often ask me about apologies in particular. They're fascinated by them. They often expect them, but don't receive them. They're also very concerned about how they can apologize well when they need to. And really apologies aren't often something that we talk about enough, uh, particularly perhaps in a business school context. So given the science and how you've written about it, what should we know about apologies? 
Well, there have been some efforts to investigate what makes apologies more effective. For example, there's one paper by Roy Lewicki, Beth Pollan, and Robert Long Jr. that was published in 2016 in the journal Negotiation and Conflict Management Research that identified six underlying components of apologies based on prior work. These include an expression of regret, which conveys how sorry one is for the offense, an explanation that provides reasons why the offense occurred, an acknowledgement of responsibility to demonstrate the violator understands their part in the offense, a declaration of repentance that expresses a promise not to repeat the offense, number five, an offer of repair that proposes a way to work toward rebuilding trust, and six, a request for forgiveness to pardon the violator's actions. And they found that apologies were more effective when they contain more of these components. And of these components, two were particularly important, an acknowledgement of responsibility and an offer of repair. And they also found that the least important component was a request for forgiveness. So this study, along with other initial studies that have been done on this topic, suggests that how apologies are conveyed can certainly matter. And I suspect there'll be additional research to provide more specific guidance on this issue. But one of the major themes of my own research and this book is that a focus on apologies misses a critical part of the equation just as, if not more important, is how the violation itself is viewed, specifically as a matter of competence or integrity. Another way of thinking about it is, was the offense intentional or not? Uh, Mm -hmm. With intentional offenses being seen as a reflection of one's integrity, or if it's unintentional, it's a matter of competence. So if the violation is viewed as a matter of integrity, uh, it turns out even the very best apology is likely to fail and lead to very negative reactions on the part of the people we're apologizing to. But this matter of how we attribute an offense, you know, this is a huge part of the equation, whether we see something as a matter of competence or integrity. It's something that plays such a huge role, but we give very little thought to in the way we perceive the world. We tend to make this assessment, like whether it's a matter of competence or integrity, in ways that are often oversimplistic and wrong. So we need to give that assessment much more attention, in addition to whether someone apologizes or not, because that attribution can significantly alter the effects of the exact same apology that's conveyed and even cause that response to backfire. To your question about, well, why might someone want an apology not get one? It's often because precisely this issue. Sometimes when people apologize, we respond in ways that essentially tell the apologizer that they shouldn't have even bothered (laughs) because that apology makes the situation worse. And so part of the blame lies in us. We are creating the incentives to them not to apologize in many situations. So if that's what we want in apology, then we need to look into ourselves and our own reactions to these incidents. So a lot of the story of the book, uh, one of the, well, I should say one of the themes of the book is the need to think about these attributions. If we don't, it's almost like trying to avoid traffic accidents when driving by only looking straight ahead and mm-hmm. ignoring the cross traffic. The risk there is you get metaphorically T-boned. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's such a powerful and apt metaphor. I hadn't thought of it in that way. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, And you know, it it immediately makes me think, and you know me, so you know I have to ask, your book is not focused explicitly on negotiations, I know, but you know, many of our listeners are are taking a negotiations course or otherwise interested in negotiations as you and I both are. 
I'm curious, how do you think these lessons that you cover in the book about trust apply specifically to negotiation contexts? What are, and in particular, what maybe are some practical steps or behaviors that you recommend that we could do? Well, trust is essential for negotiations, as I'm sure you suspect. And that's because negotiations are inherently mixed motive in nature. We benefit in negotiations when every, everyone cooperates, but there's always this incentive for people to mislead and cheat and be more self-interested in how they approach that situation. So that's where the lessons uh, from my book about trust can certainly apply. Let me give you just a handful of implications for how the findings might be relevant. So if we're to think about power in negotiation, it turns out that power is a function of two things. One, what you can bring to the table, which affects how valuable you are to your counterpart. And two, your best alternative to the negotiated agreement, you know, the likelihood that you'll walk away. And that affects the minimum you need to reach a deal. And so the question is, what happens when trust is low? Any claims that you make about what you can bring to the table will get discounted. So if they think there's only a 50% chance that you'll deliver on what you're promising, economists would say that the expected value of your promise gets cut in half. And any claims that you might have about having a good BATNA will also be questioned. So you may not get an offer that meets your bottom line, and the negotiation is more likely to end in impasse. Trust has a very clear implication for your power in negotiation. You want to build trust even if the negotiation is entirely distributive because it really does affect how much you can claim. And the importance of trust becomes even more important when we get to the integrative side of the negotiation. The risk is that the information you share might get exploited by your counterpart, then you're less likely to share that information, and hence the uh, counterpart has less information with which to construct these kinds of mutually beneficial agreements. You need to bolster trust in order to make that information sharing possible uh, and more likely, and that is an additional benefit of trust. You know, we can go even further to think about the implications of trust from the perspective of its alternative, which is to use lengthy, detailed contracts to reduce risk. Some of the things I touch on in the book is that, first of all, these kinds of contracts, as lengthy and as thorough as you think they are, may still not mitigate all risk. It's impossible to foresee every possibility. And what happens when something unforeseen happens as you're executing the deal? When there's trust, you're more likely to work with your counterpart to solve the problem, to figure out you know, how to resolve this because you believe that they had not done this in an attempt to take advantage. But without trust, what is the recourse? Uh, you wind up in court uh, months, maybe years in a costly court battle. And even when there isn't a breach, even when things go as planned, these kinds of agreements can inhibit trust, right? So uh, because it's unclear whether or not that cooperation was due to them being trustworthy or because of that contract that you have put into place. And so what happens when you're considering whether to work with that person again in the future? You have to write yet another super lengthy detailed contract to prevent future infractions. And here's an irony is that the more complex the contract is, the more likely a violation will be because it's very, very difficult for anyone to keep track of all these idiosyncratic aspects of the deal in their heads as they're executing a deal. So we are more likely to break the contract when it's complex 
And furthermore, we are less likely to account for that complexity as the reason for why that contract was broken when the violation happens. And it turns out that when a violation breaks the letter of the law, something that was actually in the contract explicitly written, we will see the violation as more intentional. And that will in turn make the breach harder to overcome. It all comes down to trust. And that's really complex. That's, <laughs> I like it. That's uh, I think that's why it's, it's very cool to study these topics. So I wanted them to take a step back and ask at a macro level, given the complexity of trust, and then thinking about all that you address in the book, if you had to pick one lesson or insight that's most interesting to you, and I know this is a tough task. You have so many stories and, and research and et cetera in the book. Um, what would that be and, and why? And, and it doesn't have to be one from your own research, although, of course, it certainly could be. It's probably this. And it's something that, that really encompasses all the research and, and the book itself. And it, it's the idea that if I were to ask you how important trust is in your life, I have no doubt you would say it's vital. We all consider it vital. Yet time and time again, the findings from my research have underscored how we make these judgments so poorly. One of the most important aspects of our lives, we are managing in a really, really poor way. <laughs> and it's illustrated by a host of things, you know, simple differences in wording, little tweaks that I can make in language can make an enormous difference in our decisions to trust, even when the exact same violation has occurred. We try to address these incidents based on assumptions that are quite often wrong. And our responses to others, trust repair efforts, uh, readily discourage the responses we want most. So this gets back to your comment earlier about sometimes we don't get the apology we want. Well, part of it is because we're creating a serious disincentive in many cases for others to apologize. That's the conundrum that has kept drawing me to this topic. The findings make clear that we have an awful lot of work still left to do. It's a complicated little five-letter word. <laughs> well, you end the book with four just seem really excellent guiding lessons. Could you review what are those lessons? The first lesson is our desire to be good. And this gets to the fact that the evidence actually reveals that people are not as opportunistic as we've been led to believe. So much of the pre-existing literature and science has been based on the premise that people will take advantage of you as soon as they get the chance. It turns out that that's not the case. When we trust people, they don't see this as an opportunity for exploitation in most cases. Instead, they see it as a precious resource to preserve for the future. If people want to be good, if people want to be seen as trustworthy, then that shifts the focus of attention to the question of, well, how do we help people get there? Very few people want to be saints. They want to be good enough to see themselves in the mirror. So what does that mean? It means, in part, addressing the kinds of temptations that may induce even well-meaning people to go astray. It means clarifying our expectations in ways that others can comprehend rather than confusing them with all sorts of legalese and super lengthy contracts that they cannot possibly keep track of in their minds. There are things that we can do to help encourage people to do what they want to do, which is to be trustworthy, to be good people. The second lesson is the complexity of truth. 
this gets to the fact that we tend to view the world far too simplistically. Uh, we are seduced by simplistic stories, uh, uh, simplistic accounts of what happened and why. We tend to see things as black and white, make knee-jerk reactions, and those inferences are often based on what we're motivated to think rather than what really happened. Given how important these assessments are for how we deal with these challenges, this is extremely problematic. And so the way we make our attributions, make inferences, can exert a dramatic effect on whether trust is repaired or not. So we need to get better at doing that. So what does that mean? There are many chapters in the book that delve into what this entails. At a surface level, it means digging into the facts and details. It means seeking and comparing differences in people's narratives, becoming more careful about our assumptions about competence and integrity. A lot of times, violations are the product of both. And so how do we make that calibration? We need to consider both sides of the story. And it also means that we take better stock of what integrity or moral character even means, because that is not as straightforward an assessment as we like to assume either. The third lesson, the upside of intent. This is a bit of an antidote to so much of the book's focus on how things go awry when we believe others have low integrity. But if people do generally want to be good... There is a lesson there as well, and it's that there are benefits to creating the perception that you are doing your very best. You want to be good. You are trying to do right by others. And so the more you do that, the easier it is for others to view your failures as mistakes, as matters of competence that are more easily forgiven. In fact, people will even be motivated to see those failures as mistakes because they will have more at stake in preserving the relationship with you. So those are real upsides. But there's a caution there too in this lesson, and it's that we can easily make the assumption that because we believe our intentions are good, that those intentions will be apparent to others. And that's not necessarily true. And, and this gets to how assessments of integrity are far more complicated in the real world than we'd like to think. We may believe that we're doing the right thing, but others may disagree. That entails that we step out of our own interpretive bubble to think about how other people are perceiving these situations and do our best to make clear to them that we're trying to reconcile to the very best of our ability. Finally, this fourth lesson, I title it, The Need to Walk Through the Doors. And this is something that was from a quote by Father Greg, who is one of the people I discuss in one of the chapters. He is a founder of Homeboy Industries. It's an organization that has been created to reintegrate offenders back into society. He essentially says we have to walk through the doors. They have to walk through the doors, otherwise it doesn't work. And this was after years of efforts to figure out the best way to manage this process. And what does this underscore? It underscores that the repair of trust is not a one-way action. It highlights an important difference between trust and forgiveness. So we can forgive people without them even knowing about it, without them being involved, without our even intending to make ourselves vulnerable to that person again in the future. That can happen in a one-way manner, but if you try to repair trust through one-sided action, what does that mean? Well, that typically means creating financial systems, surveillance systems, penalties and regulations and so on that can keep the other in line, right? And what we know from the science is that that can backfire. 
we need the other side to want to repair trust with us as well. So both sides need to be willing to engage in this effort. And that's not something people are always prepared to do. And so it really speaks to how we may sometimes need to wait for that moment to arise. We need to wait for the time to be ripe, just like conflict management scholars talk about the need for the time to be ripe. Very similar thing may be needed for the repair of trust. If they're not willing to walk through the doors, then you're not ready to really engage in what's required to get that to happen. It's such a giant task to write a book. And I love the summary that you just gave of those four lessons. And and those for the listeners, it's kind of at the end of the book. So you've got actually a lot more before that to go through. But I want to take a step back and talk about the book itself a little bit. You know, why write a book? How did you approach such a seemingly enormous task of, of doing that? How did you come up with the idea for the book of initially and, and what made it you know particularly compelling to do, given kind of the enormity of trying to encapsulate all that is trust? And we've seen how complex that is in just one book. Why, why do it? <laughs> I think quite a few of us have a book within us. At a mm-hmm. minimum, we each have our own life story that can highlight all sorts of challenges, choices, and perspectives. When I was a a child, I was a ravenous reader of biographies because in a way it was almost like shopping for the kind of life I wanted to have as an adult. So just seeing these choices and and how it led to the kind of people people became, that was always fascinating to me. More broadly, I think a lot of people can't, you know, have this book within them. I always thought I would write a book someday to help make sense of the world in a way that researchers are uniquely qualified to do with kind of scope that can't be achieved within the confines of any scientific paper. The idea of writing a book has always been in the back of my mind throughout this career, but there was also this feeling that there was still so much more to learn before I would be ready. What finally got me to take the plunge as someone studying the repair of trust is the sense that we were at such a low point when it came to trust in the world. When I started this research, this was a few years before the Enron scandal in 2001. And since then, there've been a litany of other scandals involving tons of businesses and public figures. There's the 2008 financial crisis, more recently, the 2021 insurrection in the U.S. Capitol. And virtually every survey of trust I've seen has found that trust in our institutions and leaders has significantly declined. So the short answer for why I wrote this book is that I felt like I had to. Hmm. It was time. Well, we're glad that you wrote it. And you you talked a little bit about writing, and it, it can be really a challenging and overwhelming and intimidating activity for anyone, no matter your position or place. So I'm curious if you found any particular challenges when writing the book. And for our listeners in particular, any words of wisdom then based on your experience that you might offer us about how to write well, regardless of whatever context that we're in, you know, the classroom or the workplace or for some other audience? Writing a book like this was certainly an entirely new experience, in part because it entailed broadening the audience I had in mind or speaking to a different audience. And I think this issue of audience really matters for how you approach a book, because especially for something like this, a a book based on science, a nonfiction book that tries to convey scientific findings to a broader audience, that involves translation and translation 
always involves compromises. There are many popular books out there that are successful because they're easily digestible, but they achieve that simplicity by oversimplifying the science and, in, and often getting the science wrong in their attempts to make something digestible. So there's always that trade-off there. And other books will lean more uh, on the indigestible <laughs> because they are, <laughs> you know, trying to stay true to the science. And that's a tightrope that I think any book that really tries to engage in this translation will have to follow. Whether or not the book was written well will probably depend on the audience <laughs> that's reading it, depending on the reader. <laughs> you know, th there were some very clear choices I had to make when approaching this. For example, one of the conversations I had with my book agent, in addition to publishers, is there's a, a major choice to be made between whether or not this would be a how-to book that provides prescriptive guidance or more of a what they call the big think book that just explored these ideas. What I was told is, you know, they said you could go either way with this, but just so you know, how-to books are more commercially successful because more people are interested in that prescriptive guidance. I, however, made a conscious choice for the other kind of book. And it's primarily because I was very concerned about the potential for these findings to be abused. I did not want to convey these results in a way where someone who was a very instrumental in their thinking would say, okay, this is what I do in these situations to get a maximal result. That's not what this book was about. It was intended to help people make sense of the world and how we navigate through it. I did want to be faithful to the sciences as a scientist. And sometimes I toss and turn when I read some of these popular press books that really sort of misrepresent the science in the service of a sexy line. That's something that I, I didn't want to do. And I also wanted to convey this nuance. If you are really seeking to use what we know from the science in a meaningful way, you have to understand the nuance. So this book isn't for all people. And as, as you noted in, in the book, I make very clear, it's not for people who are interested in quick fixes. If that's the kind of book they're interested in, there are plenty of airport books that try to do that. And that's not my agenda. For those who really want to understand how the world works, based on what we know so far, who are prepared to move beyond the simplistic and superficial portrayals of these kinds of findings, who are prepared to do a little work to dig a little deeper, I hope this book reaches them. It's in that sense that I consider the book a success. So if I could summarize, I think you've highlighted two, maybe a third separate, but really intertwined Things to keep in mind when writing for whatever reason is A, the audience. So know and be very clear about to whom you are writing. But then second is understanding that purpose of your writing and just being very clear about what that is and the trade-offs that come inherent with any choice about that purpose. And maybe the third kind of bigger theme that I took from what you just said is, is honestly true wisdom and mastery is not easy. And that's okay in a sense. Is that fair? That's Perfect. That, that encapsulates everything I said quite, quite well and cleanly. Thank you. Good. I think, and it's, it's just such a nice reminder, I think, as we all, you know, face whatever writing task or whatever communication task we have to, to keep in mind as we go. So I'd like to ask a final forward-looking question, if I could. So in thinking more about all of the research, including your own excellent work on trust, 
what do we still need to know? Why is it important that we know that? And maybe a, a different way of asking it is, you know, where do you want to see trust research go in the next maybe five, 10, even 20 years? So what's what's your next book about trust? What does that look like? <laughs> well, you know, this gets to my reluctance in terms of starting the book in the first place. I feel like there's so much we still have yet to learn. Let me just give you a few of these issues that we should pay more attention to. First, a theme in the book is how difficult it is to repair integrity-based violations. So far, there have been very few solutions for doing that. We need solutions to this problem. So I see one strand of research exploring that big, very thorny question. Second, you know, one avenue that the book highlights for how this problem might be circumvented is by shifting attributions from matters of integrity to competence. If integrity violations are difficult to repair and competence violations are easier to repair, well, then maybe you should just shift that attribution. Well, that's not so simple. I mean, I can do that in my studies, but in the real world, people are not open slates. They're not simply going to accept the attribution you offer them. And so that creates a very different kind of dynamic when people may resist the attribution you as someone who seeks to repair trust might try to make. I've seen some pretty ham-fisted attempts to do that by companies after various transgressions. So it can certainly be done in a bad way. And, and the question then becomes, well, how do you do it more effectively in a way that the recipient is willing to accept and believe and support? How do you do that in a way that doesn't seem self-serving? And how do receivers themselves engage in that effort more reflexively so that they don't put themselves in that hole, in that trap right away, and that that is the trap that they need to get out of? Third, we also need a deeper understanding of what integrity even means. And this gets to, you know, the literature on ethics and morality, which we talked about in the last podcast episode. Mm -hmm. So I've started to explore this issue. You know, how do we make these difficult choices when things are not so clear cut? When we need to choose amongst different ethical priorities, when other people may have different ethical priorities than we do. How do we navigate that conundrum? I think there's an awful lot of work that still needs to be done on that front. And finally, I think there's a lot of opportunity to move beyond what has up to now been primarily a dyadic focus. We have the party that seeks to repair trust and the perceiver. Well, there are other parties involved. You know, how about people that are associated in one way or another to the violator or the perceiver, right? And how do they navigate the situation? Those who might have been associated with someone who's done something really bad, what is their recourse in that situation? And how do people and organizations navigate situations where they're stuck in the middle? corporations often have to navigate very murky waters with regard to the public statements they make. So there's all sorts of stuff there that could be explored. And I think there is a huge opportunity for those who are interested in this kind of work. Well, I really look forward to the next book. I think this has been a really thought-provoking discussion about something that I increasingly am in awe of as a complex but truly important topic for all of us. So thank you for being here with us. And what we learned today from you, our podcast guest, Dr. Peter Kim, is that mastering how trust works is not easy. It takes hard work and can take unlearning ingrained habits and assumptions. But if we work at it, we will reap the benefits of that effort throughout our lives. 
As our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. And trust me, audience, when I say, please go out and buy and read this book. So thank you for being here with us, Dr. Kim. Once more, I'm Laura Reese. And on behalf of all of us, we thank our guest, Dr. Peter Kim from the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Tsai, Michael Gross, Jennifer Parlamas, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Tsai, thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you will join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.